Well, the boys and girls can go off to Kingdom Kids with Mrs. Bust. And for the rest of us, it's helpful for us to, to know that here at Jubilee in our afternoon worship services, we have what is called a teaching service in the grand tradition of the Protestant Reformation. And what we've been doing recently has been working ourselves through one of the confessions of our church, the Belgic Confession. And we've arrived at Article 30 of the Belgian Confession, the government of the church. I've already taught once on this article. This afternoon, I'd like to read just one sentence from that article and then transition to the text that we're going to look at. At the end of Article 30, we read, by these means, everything will be done well and in good order when faithful men are chosen in agreement with the rule that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. And then, Article 31 then talks about the officers of the church, but you will notice that he speaks about faithful men being chosen for the offices of the church. So we are a church that ordain faithful men, qualified men, according to 1 Timothy 3, and not women to the offices of the church. Living in Canada in 2020, that may sound odd to the average person in the city of Ottawa, and perhaps it sounds odd to yourself. Why is it that this church only ordains qualified men and not women to the leadership of the church? In fact, I can say that for myself as a, as a Canadian growing up in Canada, although I'm uh, convicted of the biblical truth and necessity to follow along what we confess in Article 30, that there is something in me that kind of feels a little bit odd about it. Even though I'm convinced that this is the right thing to do, that we elect only qualified men to the offices of the church, it feels somewhat, there's something inside me that makes it feel a little bit wrong or makes it feel a little bit odd. I don't know if some of you share that or if I'm the only one, but there's something that just doesn't seem quite right about that. It sounds strange to our ears and it feels a little bit odd. And I think that if the Belgian Confession had been written today in 2020, we would have had probably a whole bunch of other articles or an extended article explaining why it is we do this. You have to understand our confessional documents always come out of a specific context and in the context at the time of the Belgian Confession, whether or not women could become uh, ordained uh, elders or deacons in the church was not, not in, uh, in doubt, it wasn't in conversation, and so they don't talk about it. In our day, this is a big issue, and it's an issue also for uh, people in our own congregation. And so I'm going to spend some time uh, working our way through that, and in fact, I'm gonna spend three teaching sermons over three afternoons to explain to us the, why it is that we elect only qualified men to the offices of leadership in the church. The first message that we're uh, gonna hear today is about rejecting gender stereotypes. Rejecting gender stereotypes as we consider the biblical directive to only have qualified men lead the church. So just a word about what a stereotype is before we then transition and look at 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Peter 3 verse seven. So a stereotype can be something that is descriptive, that is it describes something, or it can be something that's prescriptive in that it tells you how something ought to be. So it can describe something that is or something that ought to be. So a descriptive stereotype is a widely held but oversimplified image or idea of what men and women are like. That's what a gender stereotype is. It's a widely held but oversimplified idea of what men and women are like. 
and then a prescriptive gender stereotype would be a widely held, oversimplified idea or image about what a man or a woman ought to be. So when we talk about gender stereotypes, I'm talking about those both. Rejecting the idea that the oversimplified ideas and images of what women, men and women are or ought to be. Okay? So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So just to give you a little bit of context of this particular voice, verse, uh, 1, Peter, uh, is, 1 Peter 2 and 3 is giving what we would call um, Peter's commands, the Spirit's commands for social behavior as an apologetic for the gospel. And what that means is Peter is stressing that we ought to, as Christians, live in a particular way in order that others might be able to hear uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to know the Lord. And so he's uh, talking about submission to authority and he's talking to servants and he's also talking to husbands and wives and he's saying the way that you live out those relationships is, is important because you live them out before unbelieving people and we wanna live them in such a way that those unbelieving people can come then to know the Lord. And so in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, we read this, likewise husbands, he's just finished speaking to wives, he says, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then you you would be excused to think as we read that verse, well, women as the weaker vessel, isn't that a gender stereotype? And we're gonna try to look at what, what does that mean that women are the weaker vessel there? Just, just to clarify, what Peter is saying here is that if husbands do not treat their wives in an understanding and an honorable way as the weaker vessel, then their prayers will be hindered, and that could mean numerous things, but if you go down to verse 12, it says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in immediate context, it seems to be suggesting that if husbands do not treat their wives in an understanding and honorable way, the Lord will not listen to their prayers. That's very serious. He's saying that husbands, your relationship to your wives, the quality of your relationship to your wives, showing honor and understanding to your wife, directly affects your ability to communicate to God. That's very serious. But then what does it mean that women are the weaker vessel? It's not immediately clear from the context. Reading 1 Peter will not bring out any big clarifications for you as to what it means that women are the weaker vessel. So that's what we wanna investigate. If we can understand what does it mean that women are the weaker vessel, we're, we're, we're gonna struggle with that, and at the same time, we're gonna attempt to reject unbiblical gender stereotypes. Okay, we must realize that any conversation that we have about men and women, and about women being the weaker sex, that this conversation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen like we, we're gonna discuss that and we have no ideas about the differences between men and women and that we have no presuppositions about that or that we exist in a culture that doesn't have any ideas about that. We have to be aware that historically and culturally there are many stereotypes about men and women, about masculinity and femininity, and that those stereotypes in our general culture in the way that we think affect how we then read this verse and how we then interpret the idea of what, women, uh, what it means that women are the weaker sex. 
one of the, the cultural historical influences that we continue to be influenced by is the influence of ancient Greco-Roman society from the time of Greece and Rome in the time of Jesus himself. Greco-Roman society had very strong ideas of what it meant to be a man or a woman, masculine or feminine, and they tend to view men and women as opposites in, in a way that they doesn't very overlap very much at all, that men and women tend to be very separate and very different and very unequal. That's, that's what Greco-Roman society in the era of the New Testament church was like. So perhaps you have heard the word, well, I'm sure you have heard the word hysterical. I don't know maybe if anybody's ever called you hysterical, but hysterical comes from the Greek word for uterus. That's where it comes from. And in ancient Greco-Roman society, people believed that if a woman's uterus was unused, then it would dry up and it would move around in her body and touch her other organs and it would cause her to be hysterical that she would get a mental illness and that the best way to prevent hysteria and mental illnesses in women was that they would get married and have children. Right? Now some of you are smiling about that, but that was a widely held belief in Greco-Roman society. Aristotle, one of the famous uh, uh, philosophers, uh, he, he describes society of, as having two different parts to it in terms of the oikos and the polis. And the polis was the political public sphere that was primarily the sphere of men. Polis means city, it was the, the political sphere, the outer world sphere, that was the sphere of men. That's where you needed to be educated, that's where you needed also to have theological discernment in order to operate in that world. And then there was the oikos, that was the private domestic sphere. Men were still the boss of this sphere. They were the boss of both, but that sphere belonged particularly to women, and the women operated in that sphere, not in this one. And in this one, they didn't really need to be educated, and they didn't need theological discernment to operate in that, because that was just the sphere of the, of the home, not the sphere of the public realm like men operated in. Interestingly, early Christians recognized that this kind of thinking that separates men and women into different realms and, and, and sees no overlap in those, that that wasn't biblical. We have a letter written by Tertullian in 200, uh, about 200 after Jesus, 200 years after Jesus, and he writes a letter to his wife. And he writes to his wife talking about what she should do if he dies. And one of the things he says is that if I die, make sure you marry a Christian. Okay, that, that, that's normal, we would, all, we would all say that. Don't marry a non-Christian. But then he, he goes on to explain that not just because a non-Christian is not a Christian, but he writes that uh, if you marry a non-Christian, then he will not allow you the liberty a Christian woman would expect. So Tertullian is recognizing at that era that, that Christians in marriages, in relationship between men and women, were different than the outside culture, and that women had more liberty than this Greco-Roman idea of uh, how men and women ought to operate. He rejects those stereotypes. And you see that already in scripture. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter seven, for instance, Paul says something that we sort of go, oh yeah, sure, but at his time was, was super radical. The idea that if you were a woman, you didn't have to get married, that it was okay to be single. In a society that said, no, women's realm is the oikos, and that, that you, know, you better watch out if you get hysteria if you don't use that uterus of yours when you're married, 
that Paul were to say, no, it is okay, you can be single, that your primary relationship is with the Lord, and that is, that's what's most important. That was a very radical teaching in the time of the New Testament. Greco-Roman ideas come up every once in a while in history, in the Renaissance period of Europe from the 14th to the 17th century, there is a resurgence or a rediscovery of Greco-Roman philosophy, and we see that in our own Canadian history, for instance. It wasn't until 1929 that women were considered persons under Canadian law, and one of the reasons that they were not considered persons until 1929 was so that women could not operate in government positions. They couldn't hold public office in the realm of men, in the uh, polis. You gotta remember also that this is not such a distant history. If you go across the border into Gatineau, in 1940, it was only in 1940 that women in Quebec could vote in political elections. We see those, those ideas surge up also in Christian circles when we hear people seem to suggest that, well, women perhaps, or our daughters perhaps, don't need to get an education because they're just gonna get married after all. Maybe that's not so prevalent anymore, but that certainly was prevalent just a generation ago. You also see it that when we we come across the idea sometimes subtly that it is perhaps normal if women are not as interested in theology as men. That women not as interested in theology as men, perhaps they're a little bit less deserving of their pastor's time than men are or of their elders' time, perhaps giving less opportunities to, to learn deeply what they believe and why they believe it. And so we ought to, we ought to recognize that as part of the, the, the historical social environment also that seeps through in our own day, and we ought to reject Greco-Roman stereotypes about men and women. And then that still leaves us with the question, well then what does it mean that women are the weaker sex? Well, let's continue to think a little bit historically about this. An author I greatly appreciate is Nancy Percy. She's got an excellent book called Total Truth, and in that book she explains some, of, uh, some history about the ideas about male masculinity and femininity, and she looks at it like this. She says that in sort of pre-1760, before the Industrial Revolution in Europe, people tended to work at home. They didn't tend to leave work in the morning and go off somewhere to work. They tended to work in home environments and farms or in shops that were run in their home. And men and women always had to work together in order to survive. They had to work together in order to share the economic production and the child rearing and education of their family. That there was less the splitting of men and women into different domains of work, but that they all had to work together for the economy of the family and for the education of the children. And so men and women both cared for children and ideas about masculinity and femininity were not as pronounced and rigid as they would later be. And so she points out the example that if you look at sermons from the era or if you look at pamphlets that were distributed about child rearing, many of those pamphlets and sermons spoke directly to the men, instructing the men on how to raise their children, not just the women which when you think of how the Bible talks about child rearing and relationships with children, it's often addressed to the men, isn't it? Whereas we tend to often think about child rearing as a woman's domain. Nancy Percy traces this history and she says when you get to the the mid 1700s and then on to the 1800s, you get the Industrial Revolution. 
you get steam power, iron smelting, electricity comes, you get factory work, urbanization, and what happens is the men leave the home to go to the factory and work, and then the women stay in the home in order to raise the children. And then what you get is because of that, that happens, you get started developing ideas about masculinity and femininity. You get this idea that femininity, femininity, women exist in the private realm, the domestic realm, and that women are soft, child rearers, they're not leaders, they, they just exist to serve, they don't really need an education, they don't work outside the home or they ought not to work outside the home and they're just there to help with children. And then you have people interpreting 1 Peter 3 verse 7 to see that what it mean, that's what it means to be the weaker sex. And then masculinity becomes uh, to, to be associated with the public realm, just like in, in Greco-Roman society, that men should be tough and, and hard, they gotta be providers and they should be ambitious and pragmatic and, and perhaps a little bit wild at heart and they don't change diapers and they don't do, do women's stuff around the house and they don't like beautiful and pretty things because a man's a man. Then she, she notes that there's also the influence of Darwinism in the 1800s. So we know the, about the origin of species written by Darwin in 1859. He also wrote a paper called The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And this is what he says in there. Man is more courageous, pugnacious, and energetic than women. Man has more of an inventive genius. Man has a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than women can attain. So Darwin is, is taking his scientific method and he's applying that to come to the conclusion that men are greater than women. Gustave Le Bon, a leading French psychologist, anthropologist, inventor, and doctor in the late 1800s, he actually only dies in, in 1931, not that long ago. He was very well respected. This is what he writes. Women represent the most inferior forms of human evolution and are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilized man. They excel in fickleness, inconsistency, absence of thought and logic, and an incapacity to reason. And then he writes this, a distinguished, distinguished woman who surpasses the average man is as exceptional as the birth of a gorilla with two heads. A leading psychologist, anthropologist, doctor comparing women to a, as a distinguished woman to a gorilla with two heads. One Christian historian describes the 1800s, which we call the Victorian age like this. Victorians combined the Greco-Roman philosophy of the Renaissance, the technological advancement of the Industrial Revolution, and the evolutionary science of Darwinism, and all this they added to existing Christian religious and moral beliefs. And Nancy Percy writes that this uh, is played out in very warped, unbiblical gender stereotypes about men and women. That the church begins to adapt to the culture around them and push unbiblical gender stereotypes. She points to the book Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn, written in the late eight, uh, 1800s. At the end of the book, Huckleberry Finn does what? He takes off. He goes off into the unknown. Why? Because otherwise Aunt Sally will civilize me. That's why he takes off. There's this idea that to be a man, Huckleberry Finn wants to be a man, to be a man you can't be civilized. It's to be wild and rebellious out there somewhere and not be civilized by those domestic women. 
It's the same era where we begin to get frontier stories and frontier myths about the heroic wild men of the West. And then you, you can see a lot of the problems that we have in our current society between men and women, they find their roots in this type of history. For instance, we have in our society at the moment the idea that the biggest problem in society is men. That the problem is with men. And it's because we've, they, they've adapted this idea, well men, they tend to be these wild people, they, they're, they're brute and problematic, and they're, they're Huckleberry Finn type characters, and they're the problem. And we also have this, this, this idea that still exists in a, in a contrary way, the idea that, well somehow women, women's domain is the, the home, and then sometimes when guys get together, they make jokes about the old ball and chain the one that's civilizing me, the, the, the kind of the nag that restricts the man. Unbiblical stereotypes, the idea that masculinity is about being strong and authoritative and taking initiative and, and being the provider and the one who, get, you know, the protector and, and the one that has theological discernment with perhaps a touch of brutishness. I remember years ago, I, I read the book Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. Does anybody read that book, Wild at Heart? It was really popular. Maybe I was the only one. Maybe you just don't want to admit it. Wild at Heart was a very popular book in evangelical Christianity. Wild at Heart, he was talking about men. He's trying to create the idea that men are somehow intrinsically wild at heart. He writes, the core of a man's heart is undomesticated and that is good says. And then we, we come up with these stereotypes of femininity it means to be submissive, gentle, quiet, responsive, soft, helping, don't really need theological discernment, and maybe there's a touch of nagging in there. Wild at heart, John, Eldred, John Eldridge writes, the world kills a woman's heart when it tells her to be tough, efficient, and independent. What does it mean that women are the weaker sex? Well, it does not mean that we are adopting Greco-Roman or Victorian Darwinian stereotypes. We reject these. We reject them as unbiblical. I remember when my son Justice was just really little and we got, I don't know, something got delivered. We had a big cardboard box in the home and so my wife made him this fort out of a cardboard box. Uh, like many of you probably have done if you've had kids, and she made her this fort, and uh, she made him a fort, and she painted it, and she painted this nice big flower on the front of the fort. And I came in, and I saw my son's fort with a flower. And I literally said to her, I was like, come on, what do you put a flower on for? It's a boy's fort. You can't put a flower on there. He's a boy. My wife is giggling over there, because as usual, she's well ahead of the curve than I am when it comes to these things. And she gave me a, a good talking to about biblical masculinity and femininity, not uh, determining whether or not we can put a flower on a fort. After all, wasn't it Jesus that said, look at the flowers of the field? Not even, these, uh, not even Solomon was arrayed like these. And so we have to be careful to take these, these, these cultural, historical stereotypes about masculinity and femininity in men and women, and we have to reject them. And we have to not use those to read those into 1 Peter 3, verse 7. What we need to do is we need to think about what the Bible says about these topics. What does the Bible say about things? And when you look at what the Bible says, you discover, for instance, for example, that there are women who lead and initiate in Scripture. 
You think of Moses' sister Miriam, who in Micah 6 verse 4 it says, God says, I sent Moses to lead you also Aaron and Miriam. And Miriam was a leader among God's people sent by God. Jochebed saves Moses' life by taking the initiative to circumcise their son. We can think about the midwives of Egypt, the heroic midwives of Egypt who save so many of the young children, and uh, Israelite children, including most probably the, the ancestor of Jesus himself. You think of Zipporah, Moses' wife. So that, that's Zipporah who saves Moses. Jochebed was Moses' mother who saved him. Think of Ruth as someone who takes initiative, or the woman of Proverbs 31 who provides for her family and girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong, as if strength is only something that we find amongst men. You can think of Abigail, Nabab's, Nabal's wife, who saves her husband from his stupidity, or Esther and Rahab, and Meshibosheth's nurse who protects him after Saul and Jonathan died. Jehoshaphat who saves Joash when Atalia is trying to kill all the royal sons in 2 Kings 11. You think about Lydia who in Acts 16 is described as a leader in her household. You can think of the famous story of Deborah in Judges 4 through 5. Judges 4 through 5 calls Deborah a prophetess, a judge, a mother in Israel, and a leader leading in Israel. And then so often what happens is the next breath people say, oh yeah, but she was, she, she was just there to disgrace the men because the men should have been leaving and it was, Deborah you know, was just there to disgrace the men and I challenge you to prove that to me by scripture. I think that's nonsense. Women in the Bible are shown to lead and to show initiative. They also have theological discernment. Samson's mother shows better spiritual understanding than her husband in Judges 13. King Josiah seeks spiritual understanding from a whole other prophetess in 2 Kings 22. Lois and Unas taught Timothy and instructed him in the faith in, in 2 Timothy 1. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos so that he would better understand the gospel in Acts 18. Anna the prophetess in the temple is proclaiming the good news in Luke 2. All of the commands in scripture for biblical discernment are given to all of us. Those commands are not just for men. The Bible teaches that, that all of us need to be good theologians. The men need to be good theologians in this church, and so do the women. Sometimes we, we think about men. Well, well you know, men are not helpers. Women are helpers. You know, Phoebe is called a helper of many in Romans 16 too. But in Acts 13, 5, John is called a helper. We often think about uh, a stereotypical you know, idea of women is that the women are gentle and the men are tough cowboys. 1 Peter 3, 4 says women should adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. But Philippians 4, 5 says that all believers should let their gentle spirit be known before men. 1 Timothy 3, 3, which you read, elders need to be gentle. You may not elect a non-gentle man to the office of elder. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul says about himself, listen to this, he says, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. He describes himself in his apostolic ministry like a nursing mother in gentleness, tenderly caring for the children. I'd like to read you a, a quote from an article I greatly appreciated. It's an article that comes from Clarion Magazine, which is a Canadian informed magazine. 
from the June 1st, 2018 edition, and it's written by Dr. Cornelius Van Dam, who's a now retired professor from our seminary, and he writes an article about, uh, called Who Am I? And it's an article that's uh, written about um, uh, sexual identity, particularly amongst children. So listen to what he writes. Stereotyping can cause children to worry about their identity. For example, boys are supposed to be self-confident, rough, assertive, and play with guns or trucks, and girls are to be more accommodating, gentle, emotional, and play with dolls. If a child does not conform to such gender expectations and parents let that be known, then the seeds of confusion and future trouble about one's uh, true identity can be sown. And then he says this, stereotyping should be rejected. I don't think Dr. Cornelius Van Dam would be representative of some sort of liberal Christianity. Stereotyping should be rejected, he says. Each child is a unique creation from God. It is difficult to justify gender stereotyping from scripture. The Bible pictures Esau as the rough outdoors type, but Jacob as a quiet and stay-at-home type close to his mother. Women were the ones who asserted themselves and challenged Pharaoh's command to kill the male children. And it was a woman, Jehoshaphat, who defied Queen Atelia's decree to kill all her grandchildren, by hiding her infant nephew, Joash. Our savior characterized himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Christian virtues for both male and female include being gentle and meek. The gifts of the spirit are not classified for male and female, but both genders need to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. End of citation. Rachel Green Miller, in her book, Beyond Authority and Submission, says it this way. You are not less feminine if you love math, science, history, and even theology. If you are the CEO of a company and are responsible for men and women employees, even if you are asked to out your husband first, even if you make more money than he does, even if you handle the finances, even if you're a police officer, even if you lift weights and build muscles, you are feminine because that is what God made you and nothing can change that. The same is true for men, she continues. If God made you a man, you are masculine. Not because you love football and cars and getting dirty outside, not because you fit the mold of a, a leader, initiator, provider, protector who's strong and has theological discernment. You aren't less masculine if you love art and music or flowers on your fort. Even if you work as a nurse or stay at home with your children, even if your wife is taller or physically stronger than you are, even if you drive a minivan, you are masculine and always will be because God made you a man. See, Miller is refusing to play according to the modern gender playbook of our day that says that what makes you masculine or that wakes, makes you feminine is what you choose to do, right? That's the narrative today, that what makes you masculine or feminine or even male or female is what you choose. 
and she's saying no, biblically you are masculine or you are feminine by virtue of being created male or female. So we reject all gender those gender stereotypes and then we're left with the question, well what does scripture mean when it says that we ought to show, husbands ought to show understanding and honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I believe we could, we, could, we could state the following two things as true about women being the weaker vessel. It is undoubtedly true that in general, in general, women are physically weaker than men, that women are physically more vulnerable than men. I say that in general because there are exceptions to that, but in general, across the world, in all cultures, men tend to be physically stronger than women. Not to say that women aren't strong. Women give birth, guys. You try that. Women are strong. But the reality is, is that when men hit, or boys hit puberty, and testosterone flows through their body, they gain more upper body strength than women. And so women are physically vulnerable comparatively to men. And so we know, for instance, this is interesting, that in, in the Western world, women tend to hit men more than men hit women. In the sense that men might slap, uh, women might slap men and do that more often than men might hit women. But why do we not really talk about that? Well, it's because when a man hits a woman, it is way more serious because the, the, the ability for a man to damage a woman is way greater because they have greater upper body strength. They're physically stronger. Why is it that sexual abuse primarily happens from men abusing women? Because men, women are physically vulnerable, sexually vulnerable. Especially, by the way, because, also because women are able to get pregnant. And when you are pregnant, you are very vulnerable. Sometimes you can barely get off the couch. You're physically vulnerable. So to be the weaker sex, I think we could, we could state without falling into all kinds of stereotypes that, that to be the weaker sex is to be in general physically weaker, more physically, physically vulnerable. I think you could also say that often it seems to be as it was in the time of, uh, of 1 Peter and still exists in many places around the world today that women are often more socially vulnerable in that they tend to be perhaps less protected, less educated, and more vulnerable to manipulation in their broader culture. You have to remember that it was not so long ago that even some of the older members of this congregation, if they are a woman, would have found it difficult to simply get credit to buy something if they are a woman because only men could get that. So there's many places in the world still today where women are socially vulnerable. I lived in West Africa for five years and I can tell you that women are so vulnerable in that country. It just makes you want to cry. And so here we have in scripture reminders, or we should say commands, that in a marriage, in a, in a marriage, the man, because the woman is the weaker sex, physically more vulnerable, socially perhaps more vulnerable, that they are reminded by the apostle through the inspiration of scripture that you need to think of your wife as a co-heir in Christ, that they are equals with you in Christ, that you are together in Christ Jesus as co-heirs, that the scripture says elsewhere, in Christ there is no male or female. 
And scripture tends to focus on what is similar between men and women more often than what is different than between men and women. That we are equals in Christ in every way. And then Peter tells the, uh, the husbands that they then have to act in an understanding and an honorable way in their marital relationship. And so you can say that that means at minimum this, that men may never, ever, ever, ever physically exploit the vulnerability of their wife. Never. They may never, ever, ever, ever exploit the sexual vulnerability of their wife. Never. And that they also ought to be aware of the difficulties that their wife may face living in a society where by virtue of being a woman, that they are vulnerable. And that the men ought to do their utmost to create a situation in their marriage where women experience all the countercultural blessings of being a Christian, where they treat their wives with the love of Jesus himself. And then he adds that warning that if you do not do that, your prayers will be hindered, that you risk your very relationship to God if you don't take that seriously. We have a, a great story in, in our family about uh, my wife's great-grandfather. My wife's grandparents got married. They were living in Friesland in, in the Netherlands, and they got married, and they were uh, living on a, on a farm. And my, uh, my wife's great-grandfather heard a rumor about the way that his son was treating his wife. He heard a rumor about, about how Beber's gr uh, grandfather was treating her grandmother. And the rumor was this, he heard that, she, uh, that his, in their marriage, her grandfather was using the word ye instead of, oh, how do you say it? Yai? Yai instead of u. So a little bit like in French, he, he was saying tu instead of vous when he spoke to his wife, right? So in, in those languages, there's two ways you can say you. You can say it in a, in a more respectful way or you can say it in a, in a more casual way. And he was speaking to his wife in the casual way that, that one would normally speak. And her great-grandfather heard that and, and, and was upset about it because he thought he ought to be treating her with more respect. And he hopped on his bicycle and he rode his bicycle for two hours through the farmland to go talk to a son that he better respect his wife. That's a, that's a good family story. And it demonstrates, at least, at least for me, the insistence that you ought to treat your wife with understanding and honor as the weaker sex. We might smile at that story as kind of ridiculous. Perhaps we need to recapture some of it. So how in the world does this then all inform our talking about the fact that we as a church here at Jubilee believe that we ought to choose only qualified males to the leadership offices of the church? It ought to demonstrate that we affirm only qualified men can be elected as office bearers, not because we're anti-women, and not because we're pro-men. And it, that it's not a question of Greco-Roman, Darwinian, Victorian stereotypes and classifications. And it's not because we believe somehow that intrinsically, biolog biologically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, women are somehow less qualified. It's not, not also because somehow we exi what exists here is some sort of toxic masculinity and domini dominating patriarchy. It's not the case. 
The Bible critiques all those things, and we reject gender stereotypes as biblical. We recognize that both genders need to equally exhibit the gifts of the Spirit, that there are not male and female virtues, but Christian virtues, that there's not a female Christ and a male Christ that males and females have to follow. There is one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, a man, and that we are both to emulate, male and female are both to emulate him. We teach that when it comes to the reality also that women are physically sexually, socially more vulnerable, as is generally the case, that husbands must treat them with understanding and honor, and that if they do not do that, their relationship with the Lord is in jeopardy, and God will refuse to listen to their prayers. And all of that then, being said, should at least open our ears and our minds, and to prepare us to hear the good news and to hear the biblical reasons for why God has organized his church so that only qualified men operate in the offices of leadership. And the question then is then, well, why has he done that? And you'll have to come back for the next two weeks to discover that. I invite you after this, uh, so after this worship service, I'm gonna stay up at the front here. If you have any questions about what I've spoken about uh, in this teaching service, you're welcome to come up and ask me those questions. I'll do my best to respond to you, and if I'm unable to, you, to I will say so, and I'll try to get back to you at a later date. To God be the glory, and to us be the joy in the Church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, Father in heaven, in your holy, inspired Inerrant word, you say that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we pray that we would live out this truth by rejecting unbiblical cultural stereotypes and that we would promote instead a beautiful biblical vision of men and women being co-heirs in Christ. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.